good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, dear listeners. I'm not sure exactly when you'll be listening to this, but this is Moving Radio. I'm your host, Christian Zip, and join me, please, won't you, for the next one hour as we take a look back on, of course, the year 2023 in film with regards to us. Moving Radio, your home for local Canadian and independent cinema here in Edmonton, Uh, But of course, we cover outside of Edmonton as well, and that's something you're going to find out about real quick. Uh, This isn't necessarily a best of. This isn't necessarily our greatest interviews. I really have just tried to pick at least a, a wide swath through the 49 different interviews or just questions we've had this year. That's right. If you go back onto uh, any streaming service that carries us, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, you're going to find 49 different pieces we did this week. Or pardon me, we did in 2023. Um, So what kind of things do we cover? If this is the first time that you're listening to us or running into us on the radio or if you're streaming this, well, we cover things like North West Fest, which is the documentary film festival here in Edmonton. We also cover the Edmonton International Film Festival every year, as we did in 2023. Uh, the Calgary Underground Film Festival, the Broadview International Film Festival, which is just films made, produced, written by women or anyone identifying as a woman. Rainbow Visions Film Festival, which is the queer film festival here in Edmonton. Also, we cover a little horror film fest and genre film fest called Northwest Fear Fest. Uh, Cuff Docs and so much more. <sighs> you know what? We just love films. It's green anywhere. But we'd see we'd be lying if we didn't say that we love films specifically that's green at the Metro Cinema here in Edmonton the most. It is the crown jewel of art house cinema in this city. So, you know, we'd love to thank all the lovely people from all those festivals and and the Metro Cinema, like Sydney Mole and the crew at EIFF, Guy Lavalie and the staff at Northwest Fest, Rainbow Visions, as well as Northwest Fear Fest. Thanks to Brenda Lieberman and Laura Carlson for all their help. Uh, they're fantastic Calgarians at Cuff and Cuff Docs. And also thanks to Beth Wishart McKenzie at Broadview Film Festival as well. And on top of that, good old Dan Smith from the Metro Cinema. Look, we have had over 2,700 engagements on those 49 interviews over the last 12 months. For me, I just kind of look at that as being uh, appreciative and thankful of all the people that check this stuff out. And also uh, the fact that somebody cares, (laughs) at least a little bit, to click on a button. So that's pretty amazing as well. Um, our interviews were listened to an average of 56 times each, and I feel like that's pretty impressive for a little show like ours operating out of a volunteer radio station in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada uh, from uh, a university radio station who basically survives on donations and the support of the community that it serves. So that's pretty amazing. We are fiercely local and only want to cover independent cinema, and we appreciate that you appreciate it. Also, big thanks this year, 2023, to the Moving Radio crew of Mark Davies, Lucas Anders, uh, Lindsay Campbell for always coming through with outstanding content, and to Chad Brunet and the staff at CGSR for all their support. 
This episode will contain clips from some of our favorite moments of the year, and it's impossible for us to cover all 49 different interviews or segments we did, and it'd be like a minute or less per clip. So uh, in no particular order, here is a sampling of 2023 from your friends at Moving Radio. With me, your host, Christian Zip on CJSR. Elaine, 45, not attractive, but not ugly, just plain. She is quick to anger, definitely not athletic. That is so perfect for you. Oh my God, thank you. God, I hate auditioning. SNL is looking for a new cast member in a hurry. Look, I know it's been a few years since you came home for Christmas and everything, and so I figure you're probably not planning on coming this year either, but, well, Dad had a fault. First up, it is an interview with Edmonton expats Arlen Konopaki and Kevin Galise, who released their first collaborative feature film, and it was called How to Ruin the Holidays. It stars Amber Nash and Colin Mockery, as well as Luke Davis, and around, it revolves around a struggling actor who returns home to Atlanta to repair the relationship with her family while they're on the cusp of losing their childhood home. Uh, if you live in the U.S., you can find this film on Amazon Prime Video, and you can rent it there. But if you're in Canada and you're looking for it, you can rent it on Vimeo. Uh, if you want to know how to do that, all you got to do is go to How to Ruin the Holidays website, and they will put you in the right direction. But here's a clip of Lucas Anders' conversation with Kevin and Arlen about How to Ruin the Holidays. Kevin, I imagine you kind of alluded to this, building a project like this from the ground up must have been challenging. Could you talk about securing funding and speak to that process? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's so funny. I went in so optimistic, so naive. I thought I was going to be able to raise them. And, you know, I'm not talking about raising millions of dollars. At the end of the day, our budget on this thing was 300000 So I thought I was going to be able to raise it. And I spent almost a year trying to raise money. This is prior to COVID. And I think I'd raised about a thousand dollars. And I was like, oh no, like, what are we going to do? It's not going to happen. And because I'd experienced something similar in running a theater, which was, I tried to raise a bunch of money to buy a theater. Nobody wanted to give money. Then I did a big crowdfunding campaign. And because that was successful, then people came on board. I thought, okay, well, I'll try that for a film too. So we did a big crowdfunding campaign and it was great. I mean, it was so much work, but it was really successful. We ended up raising something like 118 grand. And because of that, then suddenly we had people going, okay, now I'll invest. And so that's kind of how we got to our budget. We were definitely building the plane as we were going, man. Like we did not know what we were doing. We collaborated as far as ideas and a strategy, but definitely I give Kevin all the credit in the world for spearheading that side of it. And he's great at it and did a fantastic job. So I don't know if I personally had anything 
that crazy that I added to the mix. But Kevin, I don't know if you had anything. I mean, we had a really fun, really creative Kickstarter campaign that I think did more than just raise money. It also uh, communicated the flavor of the project and built up a little group of supporters that would like help us every step of the way. So I don't know if that's crazy, quote unquote, but it's unconventional and I think it worked. To the extent that we had folks showing up and dropping off food for us on uh, production days because they wanted to support. And so they were just like, well, we knew you were in production because we're Kickstarter donors. So we wanted to come by and bring everybody coffee and donuts. And it was stuff like that that really made this thing possible because I don't know if you know this, but making movies is very expensive. Three years ago, an unspeakable horror gripped the town of Amityville. Now, this house of possession has new tenants. So this is Amityville. Hey, Marv, there must be something wrong with this place, huh? Just some minor repairs. And within this house, the past haunts the present. To the house. To the house. A past that will not die. It brought us here, Marv. It? What is it? The house. Something about the house. Uh, you know, we love to cover films that are brand new coming to theaters as well as things that are chestnuts that have been released on uh, on DVD or Blu-ray or found a brand new life on physical media. You know, one of those things was has to do with the Amityville name. That's right. The Amityville name has been sullied recently with a plethora of Z-grade films with Amityville Karen or Amityville Death Toilet, and so many more I'm sure to come down the road. I discussed the 1990 version of the fourth sequel to the original film with film historian Jason Pohonsky. It's called The Amityville Curse. He did the commentary track on the release of the film uh, for the boutique Blu-ray release from Canadian International Pictures. You can find that film, along with many unearthed Canadian classics, on their website, uh, but also at the Lobby DVD shop on White. So go check out Kevin and uh, pick up some stuff from him or order it straight through him. But here's a segment of I Am Interview with Jason about The Amityville Curse, starring Kim Coates. Tell us a little bit about how uh, Tom Barry, the director, and Michael Kruger make the house kind of transcend maybe our own assumptions about it and how it kind of is integrated directly into the story. This film's different than the other films in that the haunting of the original house was an angry spirit that was essentially trying to get revenge on the people that have, that, on events that had occurred. And they were, it was trying to to torment the people in the house and gain possession of the people in the house. Now the house, the house itself is, becomes a character because of the ghost haunting it. And because we never, you can't physically see the apparition, the house becomes its representative. So that's really how it was done in the first four movies. And it, it continued in this movie. There's a difference with this movie though, in that the apparition is actually, while it comes across, frightening and scary it's really just trying to warn the people in the house or it's a lot like the changeling if you've seen that film mm -hmm. where the apparition is is someone that was wronged and they're trying to tell their story through haunting and that's what's happening that's what happens with the amityville curse and it's also tied into the rectory next door 
so there's a church next door and the events that happen there and when you see it all in context everything the house is sort of doing to the people in the house is to warn the people in the house and to sort of tell their story we're at Docket Today with Jason Bohansky. We're discussing the Amityville Curse. It's part of the Canadian International Pictures imprint. You can get it on uh, Vinegar Syndrome on Blu-ray, uh, or you can pick it up at the Lobby DVD shop, just like I did from my good friend Kevin Martin. You know, one of the things that stuck out for me in this film is uh, I love Kim Coates in lots of different things that he do. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't remember this film. This is the one where I was like, uh, minefield that we talked about earlier I'd, I'd seen that but this one i was like i don't this completely escaped me so to see young coats i was like oh man i love that guy he just he just knows how to work scenes um what sticks up for you as kind of like the charming or endearing thing about this film that that you know people should pick it up even though it doesn't have like direct links to the family in those original amityville films or even the original house itself what stuck up for you well, certainly, like Coates's performance is, is yeah is great to watch in it. For me, it's 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 a horror film, and it's taking sort of elements of that era that I really enjoyed about horror films and and working them really well. The cinematography is pretty stellar, and it's it's full of a lot of style, not Evil Dead style, not Sam Raimi kind of style, but it's it's a good example of sort of a high stylistic Canadian horror film production when a lot of them, the cinematography is beautiful and it's a nice little, again, a nice little sort of thriller. It's really, by the time you get to the end, it's a twist and a mystery that gets solved. And there is something psychological. It's been, to be quite honest, Chris, it has mm -hmm. been a long time since we recorded our commentary. for it. So <laughs> yeah, the details okay. escape me, but, that's all right. Look, I, the I do impressions. remember being very well. I do remember being very impressed by the psychological aspects that that you don't really feel are there until you get to that final twist in the movie, mm -hmm. and then it all sort of comes together. And it's something that we actually the the better of Canadian horror films do, and they do it in a way that you don't really see that being. It's it's under the surface. You can watch the movie on the surface level and never get it. But there's this thought that goes into these films on a psychological level. I can make all this unpleasantness go away. But you have to win it from me. The world's on fire. And there's nobody to put it out. Here on Moving Radio on CGSR, we have all the time in the world for local filmmakers. And some of the people that we talked to this year were from Brimstone Pictures, and it was all about Spin the Wheel. Founders Preston Wasiak, David Heacock, and Neil Chase were on Moving Radio earlier this year to discuss their feature film, Spin the Wheel, and it's shot in Edmonton. It's an edge-of-your-seat dark comedy supernatural thriller about a group of strangers in a dive bar whose faith and resolve are tested past the breaking points as the world ends around them. Well, you'll have to wait a little bit until it's available on VOD or physical media, but here's a clip from my conversation with Preston, David, and Neil about Spin the Wheel. The idea for the film 
came from, I guess, my love of genre films to begin with, but then expanding into disaster movies. And there's always this theme in disaster movies where where it's all about some hero who traverses the world, who goes out of his way to go into outer space or something like this. And meanwhile, the rest of the world, the 99.9999999% of the rest of us are just sort of sitting there waiting for this inevitable end to happen and really have no say in it one way or the other. And that was kind of the genesis of the story. Uh, I thought rather than looking at it from that hero standpoint, looking at it from the ordinary person standpoint, what do the rest of the people do in times like this? And I kind of threw this question out to the, all the people that I knew. I said, if the world was ending and you knew it was going to end in just a couple of hours time, but there was nothing you could do about it, what would you do? Most people gave me the same answer. They said, I would want to be with my friends and family in my last hours. And then that brought up an interesting question for myself, which was, what if you couldn't? Where would you go then? And almost exclusively, the answer I got was, I would find the nearest bar and I would get drunk. And that was kind of where the idea started. So I thought, what if we had this collection of people who knew that the world was ending, but for one reason or another, they had no one to be with in their final moments. And so it's this group of strangers who are kind of cut off from the rest of the world. And while the world is kind of going to hell in a handbasket outside, they don't want to take part in that. They don't want to be part of the rioting, looting, the violence, whatever the heck is going on, this chaos. They would just like to sit in this little quiet corner of the world that they found and drink it away. And in doing so, they kind of find a connection with each other. Being a genre fan, I thought, I'm going to throw a supernatural monkey wrench into the twist, where one of the strangers is the devil, or presenting himself as the devil. Is he really the devil? Well, it's for the rest of the people to find out. But he gives them an ultimatum, kind of a choice, for them to play Russian roulette with him for a chance to save the world. And that's really kind of where the story takes off. So talk just a little bit about that. And if you want to go into some detail about some of those characters. Uh, it's an extremely personal journey for these people. And I think that's what's going to help drive this film is people will attach. The, there's enough variety in this film of characters that somebody will find themselves in one of them or maybe two. Hmm. And what we did as as on the directing side was to really get... Um, a, a personal deep response from each of these actors who did a phenomenal job made our job pretty darn easy to reflect on their own lives because i think a good performance has a certain amount of reality in it and that's drawn from your own experiences and everybody just bared their soul with these characters and I, I think there's a bit of a parallel with the world as it is now anyway because you just turn on the news it is chaos you do want to escape right so it's not too hard to buy into but we uh, we shaped it. We made it feel safe. I think that's the one of the main roles of a, a director is to make the environment safe for people to take risks and know if they do completely unravel, we'll put them back together safely. And they did. And some of these performances, I think, are going to surprise a lot of people. Definitely. Uh, just adding to what David said here, you know, the the characters themselves, the way the actors really kind of embodied the characters the performances just became so incredibly honest. There's so many times in film, no matter what level of film, uh, whether it's independent film or even 
you know, your, your huge multi, you know, hundreds of million dollar uh, blockbusters, you know, you always see a range of, of different acting. Uh, you, you see a range from, you know, actors that are absolutely, you know, stunning that no matter what they do, they just embody whatever character is that they're, they're playing. You've got actors that, you know, they're one note and they, they play the same thing in every single movie, right? What was interesting in the process of making Spin the Wheel is, as as a team, uh, you know, directors, producer, we saw performances come out of these actors embodying these characters and who they are that we actually had never seen some of these actors do before. It was really refreshing. It just brought a realism to the characters. You know, when you're seeing characters crying in this movie, those are real tears. I mean, they they actually took time to collect themselves. They took time to really get into that mode. And when they brought the scene, we're all just sitting there in just complete silence as we're filming, you know, these scenes. And we're just like, wow. Yeah. And so we're very, very happy, obviously, uh, with the performances. And 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 through those performances, it, it really just brought these characters that are off the page that, that Neil so uh, crafted so well and, and just brought them real. And what we found now, too, and I'm sorry, I might be a segueing a little bit here, cool. but uh, what we found, too, is in our test audience runs with the movie, people are really resonating with specific characters based on perhaps what they're going through in their life or what they're how they grew up. And as a filmmakers, you couldn't ask for more. No, honestly, it's so we're very, very happy with that part of it. If If I could just add to that, I had long discussions with each actor. Um, after the casting process was completed and we talked about the character, the story, the mindset of the character, as well as the mindset of the actor going into it. And I think a lot of it came down to a position of trust um, on the part of, of both director and actor in the scene in the sense that let's explore different things. Let's explore different avenues. I wanted them to have as much creative freedom with the role uh, as we could, while still staying true to the to the script or to the words on the page. If you're reading this, please don't be cross with me. But I have travelled back in time. Don't worry, everything is under control. That the kind of rules. Where'd you get it? The future. <laughs> Despite one or two complications. What is the plan? I don't know what you mean. Feels like you should have had a better plan. No, this is the plan. This is phase one. So what's phase two? Saving the world. Glad somebody's on that. <laughs> Everything will become clear. Trust in the plan. There is a plan. Some little differences can happen. What if I just leave? What would happen to your little prediction then? You can't leave. Why? But the mushy blob of reality just kind of congeals over the changes. Wait. And then time keeps on rocking. Congeals? Yeah, I like to say congeals. Another interesting film that we took a look at uh, way ahead of time before it had its release on VOD was Luke Higginson, the writer, director, and editor behind Relax, I'm from the Future. 
Um, they were our guests, and they were out to promote the screening as part of Cuff. And the film follows Casper, who's played by Reese Darby, a charming but embarrassingly unprepared time traveler now trapped in the past. And when Casper befriends Holly, a jaded drifter, she helps him exploit his trivial knowledge of the future for a series of quick payouts. And you can find Relax Him from the Future on pretty much all streaming platforms for VOD. But here's a portion of our interview with director, writer, and editor of the film Relax Him from the Future, Luke Higgins. This film is uh, initially based on a film I made in 2013, a short film that played a tip, uh, which was very much a, just sort of a like a five minute, one joke premise that I, I made with some friends uh, that we shot on a rooftop one afternoon that was just sort of based around this idea of me thinking it was funny for there to be a time traveler with no plan and uh, who sort of would desperately need to unburden himself uh, without trying to change anything. Just that cute was sort of just a cute little idea that people liked the film and uh, I got some nice feedback on. And as I was trying to turn it into a feature over the next sort of bunch of years, it slowly kind of became an outlet for kind of uh, uh, expressing all of my various anxieties and frustrations about my fears about the future and uh, my sort of uh, concerns about what it means to live a life that uh, matters or has any impact or meaning and whether that's possible or whether that is uh, even desirable. And it very much, it went from a sort of a one joke premise to something that, that was surprisingly therapeutic for me writing over the next uh, bunch of years. Well, that's one thing that I like, I really enjoyed about the film, Luke, is that sometimes they get too mired in what's the science and we got to justify how the town traveling is happening and what's mm. going on. And it just felt like that was a vehicle in itself to explore these characters and just how deeply flawed and human they really are. So talk just a little bit about why you felt that was so much more important and you thought, oh, this just time traveling will just be a fun convention to like throw in some some interesting things in that. Why did you want to focus so much more on this idea of of the characters as opposed to like, you know, really beating us over the head with the science? Because we just end up accepting that it happens. I, I love all kinds of time travel movies. I, I like the really technical ones uh, and, and I like the ones that just sort of use it as a vehicle to sort of explore some other stuff. I mean, first of all, I'm just not smart enough to make the first kind of movie. Like it's, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that that's my forte, but also I just, yeah, what was interesting about it to me fundamentally, it's, is the sort of the philosophical options it gives you and the opportunities for sort of some dark humor in this idea of sort of accepting uh, that most people live lives that could be viewed as useless or could be viewed as as uh, uh, without uh, without impact, certainly that's something that I felt. That to me was the interesting idea, and I felt like that's people get it. People get time travel as a sort of inherent concept. Uh, I think for this kind of a movie, certainly for a comedy. Getting too lost in those weeds is uh, uh, is not something you want to do, but you want to. There is an internal logic consistency. I'm enough of a nerd that it had to sort of have its own uh, make sense internally. As long as it did that, that was good enough for me. The core of this film is really between the two characters of Holly and Casper. Can you talk to us a little bit yeah. about you know going through that writing process? And finding that balance between the humanity of these characters that you're trying to explore things that even you think about or that you see around you 
And then balancing that with some incredibly clever, funny stuff, because sometimes that can be tough to balance the two. It's like, well, okay, there's a bit of humanity, but really you're going to find them entertaining. But that's what I thought you did a beautiful job of is, is really balancing those two things. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I mean, my, my, first priority was I wanted to make a funny movie. I wanted to make a movie that, that, that was enjoyable to watch. I think that's the best way to explore sort of uh, uh, personal demons is to sort of make, make it somewhat palatable to, to explore uh, in the first place. Uh, I'm not, not going to make a dirge, uh, self, self-satisfied uh, or self-pitying dirge. I love comedies. I love funny movies and I love especially funny movies that sort of give you something to think about or something to chew on or something to sort of like connect to emotionally at the same time. I mean, I'm unbelievably lucky that uh, I have Reese Darby as, as the lead of my film. He's one of the funniest people on the planet. The character of Casper is sort of a fun character, but definitely does some sort of uh, questionable things, some things that might test an audience's sympathies. And it was always incredibly important that we cast someone who was inherently very likable, inherently very charming, who could sort of carry that performance through and sort of make make that character what it needed to be. And and uh, I literally could not ask for uh, a better star than Reese. And actually, I just also want to shout out Gabrielle Graham, who, who uh, is, uh, I think, an incredible, incredible performer and, and is such a different human being from Reese on so many levels. But the degree to which they clicked immediately was was one of the great joys of the process of making this film. I really, I just loved, I loved them together. They got along so well on a level that was sort of separate from having almost anything in common as people, which was really a, a fun thing to see. That was definitely the summer of Barbie at the movies, especially this summer, but I was lucky enough to talk to the director of a documentary called Black Barbie. Legeria Davies uh, is the director of this film, and Black Barbie is a personal expression that tells us a richly archival, thought-provoking story that voices the insights and experiences of Balula Mae Mitchell, who spent 45 years working at Mattel, discussing how the absence of black images in the social mirror left black girls with little other than white subjects for self-reflection and self-projection. Balula Mae Mitchell and other black women in the film talk about their own complex, varied experiences of not seeing themselves represented and how Black Barbie's transformative arrival affected them personally. You could be able to see Black Barbie on Netflix in 2024, but before that happens, check out a segment of our interview with Legeria Davis about Black Barbie. Coming into it, as you know, watching it, and I'll try not to give too many spoilers away, but, you know, I wasn't a doll person, you know, um, before this, you know, like series of conversations with my aunt, Bela Mae Mitchell, and just, you know, I feel like it's a, a project about representation, self-determination, and just kind of like intergenerational conversations on progress through the prisms of, you know, dolls through Black Barbie. And her journey itself is also one of just, you know, determination. And for, I always say that Black Barbie the doll itself is validation of my aunt Beulah and her designer, Kitty Black Perkins, like being heard and seen and valued in a company where 
it didn't seem to always be the case, you know, where it's just kind of hard. You mentioned 12 years in the making. And so I see this documentary as the same way that I feel like my aunt and Black Barbie, what that means to them, what Black Barbie means to them. This is what the documentary, I think, means for me and our producer, Aaliyah Williams, and, you know, like our EPs, a lot of the um, the people I think that came to the project had similar stories. Can you talk just a little bit too about how that evolves to a certain extent? Because I'm sure at first, maybe you were thinking, oh, well, the story about my aunt and the history that she has with the company and, you know, some of the social aspects of that will make, that, to be honest with you, that could be the movie. Um, but you included so much more. So talk just a little bit about that journey of how maybe the story for you, um, the film itself evolved as you kind of went along that road of developing it more and more. You know, as I did more research, there was just so much that I didn't know. I don't know how much of the history you knew going into it. Um, I didn't know that Black Barbie existed. And, you know, I, I examine all of that in the documentary and just thinking in terms of um, over the course of the many iterations of Black Barbie, because we talk about the original Black Barbie, we talk about the 30th anniversary Black Barbie, we talk about the 40th anniversary Black Barbie, because they, you know, they end up celebrating her, which is amazing. Um, it's not as big as a public, you know, publication as um, what Barbie herself would get, but our film is able to speak to those iterations of Black Barbies and the other dolls that came um, after her, the um, series of dolls, um, the line of dolls that we have Kitty talking about, Shawnee. I think we see through the evolution, um, evolution of Black portrayals of the dolls and how different gazes shape it how the different gazes of, say, the Kitty Black per Perkins and the Stacey McBride Irby's, the intention that they put into the dolls that they, you know, designed. Um, so I thought that was really, really interesting and in pointing out sometimes, you know, it's really important. And just this documentary in and, in and of itself, um, I don't know that we've ever examined Barbie through this lens, the lens of Black women basically the gaze of black women and so it's amazing we're speaking today on moving radio with director writer and producer Legeria davis the film that we're talking about is the documentary black barbie you, you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier in in this conversation where you kind of said i i was not a doll person at all yeah. and you mentioned not that in the film all. too yeah um yeah. do you feel like like having some distance from being kind of an expert or fixated? Because clearly we know there are people who are very deep into that world who may be collectors yeah. or historians that maybe would have a different level of knowledge. Do you feel kind of like that objectivity of not being part of that world, even though your aunt was, did that give you some sort of kind of uh, level up on being able to tell the story from that? Do you feel like that helped? And if so, how? I think it helped me be open to possibilities. In the film, um, I use a very strong word, um, hate. I feel like um, hate is a very strong word. And what I came away with is, you know, when using such language um, that is strong as that, like, word, um, sometimes that just comes from not understanding. 
right? So I came from a place, this place of my disdain, my hate for dolls, to try to understand, you know? I was like, okay, this is how I feel about it, but maybe there's something I'm missing here and there's something that I don't understand because my aunt has such such a fondness for them. And once, you know, I, I sat down with her and that's one of the many things, it's it's such a kind of like nuanced and layered um, story where I always say my aunt is kind of like the key and Black Barbie is the door in which we walk in to talk about these broader themes, right? And wasn't lost on me was that intergenerational conversation. You know, my aunt is twice my age and you know, seeing how she lived history, the history that I've read in books and then history that I've not read in books because our gaze in history is usually not, it's erased and is not included in texts. And so to hear her, you know, talk about her lived experience and why, you know, the lack of Black dolls was what prompted her fondness of them, gave me a better understanding of the purpose that dolls can serve. And so, yeah, if you hate something, try to understand it. And that was what I set out to do on my filmmaking journey. Movies are my entire life. I need to watch movies like I need to breathe air. You guys finding everything okay today? Uh, do you work here? No. I just wanted to give you a hard copy of my resume. I'm very good at beginning with the end in mind, which for me is going to uh, NYU Tisch School for the Arts. I just don't understand why you won't apply to Canadian universities. Because I don't want to be like a Canadian filmmaker. What about Adam McGuane or David Bo- Cronenberg. Cronenberg. Cronenberg? Oh my God. How many advanced copies of Shrek do you think you can sell? Donkey. I thought I got hired here to talk about real cinema. I love doing inventory, <laughs> you guys. So how long have you worked here for? Four years. That's like a really long time. Did you ever want to do anything else? Like have a career? I have a career. I was wondering what you thought about me coming to New York. I don't know, when I moved to New York, I see myself becoming like a completely different person. So you're just not gonna wanna be my friend? Uh, One of our continual features that is on moving radio is thanks, Telefilm, uh, usually focused around a choice that Lindsay Campbell and Mark Davies make about Telefilm is this, if you don't know what it is, it's basically a kind of a funding firm in Canada where you can make applications and they will give you money to make your movie in Canada with uh, with Canadians in it. Now, sometimes they unearth excellent films and sometimes not. But here is an excellent one. In Chandler Levac's I Like Movies. The character of Lawrence Queller in this film is an irascible self and movie obsessed teenager living in the wilds of the early 2000s in Burlington, Ontario. He's the kind of guy who, when he buys a movie ticket, mentions the director's name just to show that he's there for the right reasons. He dreams of NYU where he'll be mentored by a grateful Todd Salons, right? Or maybe not. It's an excellent film and here's a section of that examination and maybe a little bit of review from Mark and Lindsay about I like movies. There was ever a film that I could really, really relate to. 
this is it i basically was lawrence although probably hopefully a little less irritating and narcissistic but but uh oh oh poor lawrence you know he just wants to be a director he just wants to make movies i completely understand i also could not afford to go to any american university i really wanted to go to ithaca but it was like 90 grand in the 90s to go there per year so I I got a lot of feels for, for young Lawrence and his love of films, but also I just really appreciated how kind of awkward and like you said, narcissistic <laughs> young Lawrence is because it, 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 it brings a lot of comedy to this film in kind of a, not too much of a cringy way, but a little bit cringy, but I, I I appreciated the dynamic that it brought to the friendship he had with his best friend, who I thought was wonderful, that young actor, both of the young actors, but um, the kid, Percy Hines White, that played Matt, I just thought was absolutely wonderful in dealing with this narcissistic, self-centered cinephile who's just practically unbearable and uh, all he puts up with. And, you know, too, I thought the first 45 minutes, so, you you know, hopefully everybody, as they listen to this episode, that they go check out I Like Movies uh, from 2023. Lawrence, as you were saying, he's a cinephile, and he's also dealing with, you know, you could say some mental health issues and depression. Um, we kind of learn later in, in the film that his father committed suicide, so that, you know, is obviously a big contribution to, to how he looks at the world and it presents himself. Uh, but the one thing I did appreciate, too, is I think such as myself and somebody like you, Lindsay, and, you know, all the other cinephiles in the world, you know, movies are his safe space. It's kind of his language of love. It's it just happens. They make sense to him. And yeah. there's some there's some good scenes, too, like I said, in the first 45 minutes where, you know, he's able to kind of, you know, work at the video store and he wants to kind of do the the recommendations by the clerks of, of what films they should be watching. And, you know, we've all been there, you know, you kind of think of what, how Quentin Tarantino was, he was infamous for working at a, you know, a, a video store and, you know, they just want to tell people, you know, what great films exist in today's world. So, I mean, part of it, I was very relatable to him. And then I think Chandler Levac, she also does a great job of kind of, you know, basically kind of exposing his soul and, you know, his thought process and a lot of, a lot of the problems he has. And I mean, we're all super awkward too, as well in high school. So, I mean, imagine also having to navigate kind of the pitfalls of, of what high school brings to us. And also uh, what we think the world expects of us. You know, he really wants to fit in, especially with the other video clerks. And I thought the entire cast was just incredible, by the way, like all of the other people that played the clerks at the video store were fantastic. And I thought it brought a lot of balance to Lawrence's narcissism and self-centeredness. And it really balanced with this other sort of view of yeah we like movies but like we have other things going on and that's what makes a healthy human being is to have other interests and to take interest in other people i think a huge lesson in this film for lawrence is that he needs to start asking other people what they like absolutely what they want and to show interest in that and that's a huge hurdle for him as is for so many people in high school you know when you're young you just are so enthusiastic about figuring your own self out that you kind of forget to care about other people. One of the also themes of the film, and I think you talked about it earlier, is kind of like, you know, I don't think Chandler, she presents kind of an overt anti-Canadian sentiment, but it's not really the message of the film. I don't think she's anti-Canadian 
at, at the core of the film. But it's like the little things, as you had mentioned earlier, like he wants to attend an American school, right? And, you know, it would cost, you know, probably six figures to get into this American school. I do have to say, though, the funny thing was, was I... I often go on kind of that deep dive rabbit hole of like looking up directors and I find a lot of more of the great directors, you know, come from the West coast, you know, kind of the UCLA, USC and the AFI. So I kind of was just like, you know, I just had a kind of a little smirk on my face kind of thinking of the East West divide of, of, you know, whether it's in Canada or the United States. So that kind of made me uh, smile, but kind of back to the anti-Canadian sentiment too, you know, you also look at kind of, we talk about the education system isn't good enough for Lawrence to attend to. He also even calls out Canadian filmmakers like Adam McGoyan and David Cronenberg. You know, they're just not up to snuff of somebody like a Paul Thomas Anderson. And then as well, you know, I also thought to his mother, you know, and I thought she was great. She was played by Krista Bridges. Uh, she played the character Terry, her mother. And she was, you know, she presents to Lawrence, you know, she wasn't able to pick her career. You know, she was just basically predestined to have to work as a secretary and she didn't have many choices so I kind of thought all these ideas of kind of the anti-Canadian sentiment it was presented by Chandler but it wasn't I think the core of the message I think obviously it's kind of that identity of who we are as Canadians and are we ever you know happy with it or are we ever satisfied where we are as a country so certainly I think there was quite a complex message kind of at the core of the film but I thought she did a great job also kind of being able to tell it through you know, a young 17 year old cinephile, you know, in high school, which was which is a tough, tough thing to do uh, in, in making a film. Right. Oh, absolutely. I think she really balanced nicely this sort of thing that a lot of people go through. I know I definitely like I said, I wanted to go to Ithaca College in New York, uh, East Coast filmmaking, <laughs> um, but couldn't. And just the the whole idea of this Canadian sort of working middle class of, well, it's good enough. You should be happy for what you have. You know, yes. Carlson is, Carlson's just fine. You're lucky to pursue anything that you want because a lot of people do not have that luxury. You know, whereas we're fed, we we watch predominantly Hollywood films, way more than Canadian films. And so we do see that sort of glamorized, you know, everybody gets to go to fancy college away from home and live in dorms and all the all this stuff that doesn't is not really part of the Canadian university experience. So I thought that it, it kind of, yes, it was a little bit of a anti-Canadian, but I think it comes around back to, you know what, it's just, it's just fine. It's perfectly fine to be here. It's no surprise all the video stores disappeared. With all the downloading and technology. It's not that simple, kid. Video stores like mine have been crushed and forgotten about for the last 10 years. And one of the last interviews we'll have that we feature from the 49 that we had this year is one of my favorites, of course, uh, and that's because I was just talking with some old friends about film, specifically their film. It premiered here at Northwest Fear Fest where it packed the house and it probably could have packed the house for a few weeks if it really wanted to. Um, but that's going to come soon enough, I'm sure. So if you weren't at that one screening of the last video store, don't worry. I'm sure it's going to pop up again here soon. 
Uh, this interview was with Cody Kennedy and Tim Rutherford, the co-directing duo that's behind it and were the impetus over a decade ago of making some fine short films here in Edmonton. It also stars, of course, Kevin Martin of the Lobby DVD Shop. Uh, you've heard him several times on my show. And also Josh Lenner, another former Edmontonian who's now based out on the West Coast, uh, who is also a star. The personal highlight of my cinematic year was definitely not just this conversation, but that screening at the Metro Cinema. It was just a magical moment to see the audience filled with patrons of the lobby and just lovers of genre cinema and uh, just seeing locals feel like rock stars. And I've experienced that a few times at the Metro Cinema. Lebanese Burger Mafia, there's another one that was like that too. But uh, here's a segment from the last video store interview that I did was a bit of a round table via Zoom with Cody, Tim, Josh, and Kevin. And uh, my hope is that you're not able to see it right now because it's still kind of on the festival circuit. But 2024 brings them distribution so you can all embrace the glory of the last video store. Flash forward 10 years from when we all got together and we were standing in Kevin's shop after... Um, finally coming around uh, to making some movies. We had all kind of scattered after high school and found each other once again to uh, like reignite the passion we had for filmmaking in high school. And we made a few short films, entered the Amazing Dead Fest contest, uh, where we were privy enough to get into Kevin's shop, where we proceeded to trash it for another few years, making short films, much to Kevin's dismay, um, until, you know, another, as it, as it does sometimes, um, we scattered once again, joining separate industries, and from there we were able to hone certain skills until the time came in, I think it was like 2018 or 17, 2018, we made the video store commercial, um, and that was kind of getting the band back together, and we've been singing that song ever since. So maybe this is like it all was coming together, and then it kind of split apart, but of course... It's Kevin Martin coming right back at you, you know, Godfather three style, trying to pull you back in where he's like, oh, baby love, uh, I need a uh, an ad. <laughs> but Kev, were you genuinely like, I just want to get the band back together again? Or were you like, I just want a commercial? I don't know about the band getting back together. Honestly, I, I thought the guys they all moved out west coast and, and they were doing good. And uh the store was uh as as always, ups and downs. So I, I think I think it was Cody or maybe it was Tim or maybe both that said, Hey, um, we're in town, we'll shoot a commercial for your store and uh maybe it'll help business we get on YouTube or whatever. So I'm like, Yes, thank God I need that shit. The problem was they made it too good. So uh, as the weeks went on, I'm like, hey, guys, where's that commercial, man? Business is hurting. I could really use that internet love. Uh, and then Code was like, you know, I think we could touch it up a bit and we could submit it to film festivals. And I'm like, that wasn't the purpose at all, but okay. And this is the most amazing thing. And I think it maybe even speaks to everything that you've done in some ways that 
there's a, a, a pure intent to what it was. And then all of a sudden you realize uh, once all it all combines, right? Once you come together like Voltron, maybe that it is much more powerful than you even initiated. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This can't go online. It's got to go into film festivals. And not only that, uh, we're going to get into one of the premier ones in North America on top of that, too. For that, I'll have to give a, I'll give a little bit of credit to Greg, who was the producer on the, the video store, um, because he was like, when we did the commercial, he's like, I was like, yeah, maybe there's some fest. He's like, no, submit it to these festivals, which one was South by Southwest. And I'm like, I don't know if that's going to work, man. Okay, sure. Um, and I ended up doing it. So that that was, he kind of pushed us to do that. Or at least like the those festivals where I wasn't even thinking about that. We kind of talked about how that became the impetus to even think about the idea of like the feature being a reality um, after it was already kind of like attempted and then pseudo released on the Blu-ray and stuff like that. You know, we won't get too much into the deep, deep history of, of all those things leading up to it, because I think probably for for our audience's purposes, it'll be kind of interesting to focus on more about like the journey of this specific version of the last video store feature film project. So we, you make the short, you, you get that level of success. Were either one of you like Cody and Tim, were you thinking like, okay, like this feels right. It could be a feature. Or was that something that was kind of proposed to you after the short did well um, from somebody else? Or did you just kind of feel like there had to be enough open doors for you in your life to even think about committing that level of time to it? Because it's so much time in your life as well. Probably a little bit of all of it, <laughs> would you say, Tim? I think there is there was a push, but then there was a kind of a, a wanting to, you know, if we had never done it, then it would just feel like they would just kill us for not making the feature. Yeah, I'd say after like the 2013 premiere at Fantasia, like staying in the Airbnb <laughs> that weekend, you know, we fleshed out an entire TV series and a few ideas for the feature. And then obviously we would go on to make like straight to video. So like we were thinking TV show was probably the best way to fit it in. And then after that, um, you know, we kind of thought, well, I mean, we did try that feature film in 2014, but uh, we learned a lot about how little money a lot can sound. Oh, a lot of money um, can feel like a very small amount very quickly um, when you're trying to fill out the like 85 minute mark and just how ill prepared we were for creating something in an industry system that none of us really had any experience in. So I think between that failed feature, the um, the success of the short or the series kind of led itself in tandem to the like thought process and kind of reality and the, the, I guess the way more grounded setting that we would come to in 2019 after the short did well and we were kind of greenlit on to the Frontiers film market for the following year as a part of Fantasia, we were able to like focus in on a particular um, story, although, you know, the end product as it often is, is not what we had intended right out of the gate, the beats of it and uh, the understanding of some of the properties like Caster, 
the the Beaver Lake Slasher and Prey Stalker, some of these elements that we have created as a part of the evolution of this story, um, we knew resonated really well within the video store and helped kind of elevate a story inside of a video store about the video store itself. Because often you see these like narrative movies made and TV shows are getting made in video stores because it's very culturally relevant, but very, you know, rarely are they able to, like, engage with what the, like, experience of the video store was. Obviously, we had that in spades with Mr. Martin. And, you know, any reason to bring Josh into the feature film to play our villain was uh, worth all the work. I like that they've... they now, now you're the villain, Josh. At first, I was just like, he's the face, he's the star... <laughs> spoiler <laughs> i don't know i mean look that's a subjective thing maybe i once i thing i'll be like josh is by far not the villain i'm like <laughs> he's misunderstood <laughs> a dirty videotape that's the villain yeah it corrupted him mm-hmm. yeah Well, that about wraps it up for this year's edition of the best of moving radio, or at least uh, a sampling of moving radio and uh, a very quick review of 49 different interviews that we had. Again, if you want to check us out, you can find us not only through SoundCloud on CJSR, um, but you can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all major audio streaming platforms. You can also follow us on social media at moving radio on instagram at moving radio on uh face sorry on twitter or x and you can also find us at christian zip that's zyp on uh, on facebook i post all that stuff all the time so if you want to you know be aware of it and know what's happening around town with film and you just find out that stuff you can follow us on social media and uh always again thanks to cgsr for another fantastic year i look forward to 2024 and we're wishing you and everyone who listens to this and anyone that you're next to a fantastic new year and uh here's to more great canadian local and independent cinema 